Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here today in a very quiet city of Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the microscope. I'm Scott Challoner and today I'm joined by James Lepper. James is the Managing Director at Prospect Research Limited, a business development consultancy over in Cambridge. James, welcome to the programme. Great to have you on with us today. Thanks very much, Scott. It's a pleasure to be here. It's fantastic having you, James. Now, first and foremost, this podcast is all about leadership and effective leadership at that. But what does that word leader actually mean to you? It's a very interesting question because it means so many things to so many different people. To myself, I've always thought that leadership is actually giving your, your team the opportunity to excel and, and allowing them to have a framework to, to, to excel within. It's certainly important to, to remember, especially at times like this, that it's not just about one man or one woman being a leader, is it? It's very much about the team and very much about the collective. Absolutely. Um, it, it's only when you listen to other people within your team and, and with, that you can actually formulate ideas and, and ways that your team can work together to actually achieve a, a, a common purpose. So I suppose the leader in the initial stage, what they're trying to do is to create that um, ideal or that, that shared vision. Um, and then that comes out of the shared experience of the team. So in a way, you're, you're only amplifying what the team has already told you. Mm. And for leaders as well, um, it's important to remember that we are all human beings and that human beings are ultimately fallible. They are going to get things wrong. So for leaders, it's important to recognise that not only just in team members, but also in themselves, isn't it? Um, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> well, I think part of being a leader is actually knowing one of the um one of the, one of your own failings, and and being able to identify where what your own strengths are and what your own weaknesses are, and then to actually surround yourself with people who can um, help you in the areas where you're weak, and equally where you're strong to help them. Um, that's that's part and parcel of being in within any team. But those fallibilities, they're actually things that you should look at and then work out ways that you. Um, allow yourself to, to surround yourself, if you like, with um, stars within within a, um, who, who can outperform you within those areas and equally where you outperform them in other areas. Certainly getting that balance together in a team dynamic is hugely important and it falls upon the shoulders of the uh, the leader to create a culture where everybody can really bring the best out in themselves. Um, but we talk about, of course, um, learning from others. Do you think it's possible to actually be a good leader without first trying things, making mistakes and then learning from those mistakes? I think there's quite a, a wealth of evidence that says that most people learn 80% of and what they'll learn in their entire life by making mistakes and, and through um, trying things and iterative processes. So actually physically what they do. And then it's about sort of 10% and 10% that they learn from other people and, and, and from, from books and other places. So it, it's, it's, you're absolutely right. Leaders learn by their own mistakes. And then they um, short circuit those mistakes when they see them are happening with other people or they help them to learn. But a lot of that is about delivering learning or, or um, helping people to, to actually develop themselves um, and giving them the guidance so that perhaps they don't quite fall into the same foot, or footfalls that you've fallen in before. 
Absolutely. And um, if we sort of change focus slightly to look at your own um, leadership uh, style um, then, James, how would you describe that? Yeah, I think I'd always struggle to describe it in any particular one way, to be honest. Um, I think that what I try to do is to be somebody who has <clears throat> the ideas of where we, as a company, we want to, to, the direction we want to travel in, how we want to get there, and then seek to um, gain a, um, a cohesive support um, throughout the team. Um, so you could say that that is, because um, that's a very consensual form of leadership rather than anything else. I would agree with that, certainly. I think it certainly comes across um, in that sense. And we've already talked as well about um, learning as well being really important in terms of developing leadership skills. What would you say have been the influences behind your own style of leadership? Um, I think actually the reality is is that every time that I've been into contact with any any person at any time, that has pretty much... um, created uh, a learning experience so you can start all the way from my from my parents all the way through to every employer that i've had um and nearly all of them have um, um imparted something or i've learned something from them some have been uh, much stronger influences than others i should say I can imagine, certainly. And it's interesting that you mentioned people that you've worked for and uh, your parents, for example, as, um, as, as examples there of leadership, because I think it is quite important to remember as a nation that when we think of leaders, we are thinking of people who kind of go under the radar as well, aren't we? The temptation can sometimes be to look at leadership figures as being politicians, as being celebrities, people who are in the public eye. But that's not always the case, is it? It's often the case that a lot of people who show good examples of leadership, sometimes the best examples, are really those people who you don't see in the public eye as such. Um, If we consider that for a moment, James, do you think that good leadership as a whole is as recognised as much as it should be in the UK? I think it's not recognised at all, to be honest. Um, You hear more people saying um, derogatory things about uh, leaders than you do about people actually praising what they're doing. Um, And Sometimes that's deserved, but an awful lot of times it's, it's undeserved and people are actually doing uh, a, a really great job with, with sometimes with their insufficient tools um, or, or, and they're making things that have happened that, that perhaps you would have looked at and thought that's unlikely that that would have been an outcome. So, um, And you're absolutely right about the fact that you've got what you might call um, minor leaders um, because they're unseen or unheard of, or, but they are equally uh, producing um, outcomes that are, that are surprisingly positive for the, their, their companies or their uh, families or whoever it may be that they have to be leading. So, so yeah, I think um, we don't recognise leadership as being a, an individual um, attribute as such. What we tend to recognise is is whether people have that enthusiasm to take people along with them. And that's, mm. that's not quite the same thing. It, it's a leadership quality, but it's not necessarily a leadership, a full leadership trait. I would certainly agree with that. And I think that perhaps this inability to recognise um, good leadership and maybe air more toward the side of criticising people in leadership positions from the sidelines is perhaps maybe a cultural issue that we have in this country. Would you agree with that? I think... Well, yes, I do agree with it. Um, it, it, it's, it. 
it's something I guess that if you look at um, at a football as football managers, there are more football managers that get criticised week in week out mm. than you'll see anywhere else. Um, and it it's partly it's you could say it's deserved or undeserved, but actually the fact of the matter is is that what they're saying is an, is an outcome where it's in a very tight. Um, situation um, in a, you know you either win or you lose on that particular day but actually to get to that point where you're even challenging to do that you've already achieved so much and that's the point I think that people miss is that how, how much you've already done in order to get to that that critical point mm. where it either goes your way or it goes just slightly the other way. And do you think that this sort of culture of criticism that we've discussed, this fear of having to face that, may be something that is putting off the next generation of leaders from going into leadership positions and really pushing themselves because they are they don't want to fail, they don't want to be criticised? I don't know that I necessarily agree with that. I do think there's a... Um, and the people are, are more worried about taking risk now than they were before, particularly if that involves financial risk. Mm. And that in itself tends to mean that you don't push yourself forward towards being going into those sort of leadership roles. But people are looking to, to go into to management type roles. So there is a there is a there is a cutoff when when their personal risks start to become involved. I think. So if we were to speak with somebody who were about to start their first day in a leadership role, let's say, what sort of advice would you give them? Listen to those that have already done it. Listen to those who are who, who you are actually leading um, so that you can gain an understanding of, of what it is that you, you are looking to um, achieve. Because while you may already know what, what you're, you've been tasked to do, Sometimes that actually means that you're, you're, you need to actually be the person that, that um, comes to understand how to mitigate your task to make it actually a realistic a, a, um, achievement. That's to say, where you have a, um, a team of people, they can only achieve so much. So if you're tasked to do something completely unrealistic, it's, it, it doesn't matter how good a leader you are, you never achieve it. So you have to have to seek to achieve what is achievable and you can only do that by understanding what your what your team is capable of and what their capabilities are mm. and then you can seek to look look at how you change that and mold that to, to become or get as close to your task as possible and i would say james that that is very sound advice indeed um i am conscious of uh, running out of time but before we do go about wrapping things up um do give me um an idea of what you imagine the next 12 months will hold for yourself and for prospect research and what you really hope to achieve in that time as well particularly in light of everything that's going on and coming out of the other side of that well obviously we're facing a very challenging situation at the moment and it's going to have a a long term effect there is no doubt about that. Um, so we are going to be faced with changing ways that people work. Homework, I think, or working from home, is going to become almost a par for the course, um, whereas before it, it was something we perhaps wouldn't encourage because we always felt that there was a, a strength for having a team together. But modern technology has allowed that to change and develop. Uh, things like video conferencing allows you to have a, a meeting at, uh, 
beginning of the day and at the end of the day, in fact, probably even to have better communication than, than you might have done in the office or more formal communication. So there's going to be changes in terms of how we work and the, and the way that we achieve what we seek to achieve. But also I think there is going to be, a, um, as a result of this, a pause, if you like, in, in business across the nation. And how the country then bounces back will very much be determined on how much support the, the country gives, gives its employers. And what I mean by that is we need to um, generate business. And business is generated by activity. And it's not until, until that, that activity starts to happen again that businesses can actually start to thrive. So we need that, that, if you like, inspiration to come from leaders in government um, and also from um, local councils and, and, and again, um, within the, the dynamic of um, what you might call the public sector as a, as a, and the third sector as a broad spectrum. So providing we get that, that, uh, that energy as soon as is possible, then actually I think business can begin to thrive again because there, there is the, the prospect is there. You know, business has gone into hibernation. We've seen things like furloughing and, and to try and protect jobs. So, again, there is, a, there is the possibility that business can bounce back very quickly. So with that in mind, we see sort of that in, within 12 months, we should, we should be um, at least where we are or were before and hopefully, we may even be starting to see some development in terms of ways that we work. On a more personal note, one of the things that we've been able to do, which we wouldn't have been able to do otherwise, is to look at new kinds of work that we can do. So it's meant that we've, we've experimented a little bit. Um, so actually, in a way, it's allowing us to become a little bit more agile as a company. Um, and that means that that overall it should leave us in a better position in 12 months' time than we are today. There's plenty of food for thought there, certainly, and that word agility for business at the moment is so, so important because business has to be agile, it has to be innovative, and it has to be flexible in order to seize upon the opportunities that this will present. And there will be opportunities just as much as there are challenges. Um, I have to say, James, it's been really insightful and also an absolute pleasure having you on today's programme. And what I think would be really fantastic for the listeners is if we revisited this um, in a few months' time to look at it retrospectively and just see how some of those hopes have been borne out. But for now, thank you so much for coming on today's programme. No, that's my pleasure, Scott. Thank you so much for having me. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, coming up next on the programme, we'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with England's 1966 Football World Cup hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. As well as scoring over 200 league goals for the likes of West Ham United and Stoke City, Sir Jeff to this day remains the only man to have scored a hat-trick in the final of a World Cup after his treble in England's 4-2 win over West Germany at the Old Wembley 54 years ago. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking with Sir Jeff, and that will be coming up now. Uh, we're now joined, uh, though, by former England footballer and still the only man to score a hat-trick in a World Cup final, Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, thank you very much for coming on today. Uh, You're welcome. You're welcome. Good afternoon. 
Uh, and perhaps I should uh, start and get it over and done with. I know you must be bored with it, and uh, you've probably been asked a thousand times. But when you got out for a duck playing for Essex, uh, Jeff, what was going through your head at the time? <laughs> well, of course, that's not one of the most asked questions I get. Although there are one or two people who are very familiar um, who, who do Google me realise that I did uh, score nothing for Essex. Uh, for my only game for Essex first team when we played against Lancashire in Liverpool, a place called uh, uh, Egbert in, in, uh, in Liverpool, many, many years ago, 1962, I think that was. So I didn't, um, yes, I, I didn't really feel it at the time. It was lucky to be playing, I guess, there were one or two injuries. Um, but the problem that I had was, was really messing about between the two sports. That was very detrimental to me uh, over that period of time, mm. being stuck between the two sports. And I think uh, for those that uh, don't know, there's a there's a, another world that might exist where um, Sir Jeff Hurst was a, a first class cricketer and not perhaps a, a footballer. But um, whether it's business or cricket or or football, obviously the importance of leadership it can't be understated, no matter what form that comes in. When you were at West Ham, uh, Jeff, and when um, Ron Greenwood first uh, uh, came along, he made obviously some pretty radical changes. Was this a man that genuinely inspired confidence uh, the first time you'd meet him? Absolutely. I mean, he, he was simply a, a fantastic uh, coach or teacher, if you like, at the football. And uh, the, the quite always mentioned when we talk about Ron Greenwood, Harry Redknapp, who was played under him and has been very successful as a player and, and the manager over many, many, many years. He and He's come across many coaches, of course, and managers during his time over years, I guess he would still say that Ron Greenwood is the best coach he had worked with. He'd worked with. So you're very fortunate. I think you, you think you're lucky when you come across if you have a great teacher at school and a great coach as we had in Ron Greenwood and, of course, a great manager in South Ramsey. So to come across people like that of that calibre can have a huge influence on your your career, of course, and, and then your life. And that's, that's quite purely the case. Absolutely. And in those early days um, at West Ham, uh, with, with a manager like, like uh, Ron uh, there, it's also important to have uh, uh, confidence with your other players. And of course, they become your friends. Who did you look at to at the time uh, when to inspire confidence in yourself? Was it more? Was it Peters? I think probably, well, I was very fortunate to play with the colour of the players I did. Again, again, extremely fortunate to play with you know, the captain um, of England and West Ham and Martin Peters, who was a fantastic player. And some, as far as Martin's concerned, I think sometimes he didn't quite get the uh, recognition he deserved. And what a wonderful player he was. In terms of inspiring confidence, I always probably say that the biggest influence uh, for me, I guess, would be the captain, Bob Moore. Although he was only... Uh, about eight months older than me, he graduated through the system probably three or four years earlier. He played for England in 62, four years before the final when I played. And so he, he was more, looked upon him more as a senior player, if you like, not as a, a guy with the same age group as me. And I looked at how he how he uh, trained, how he acted, how he behaved, and how he played. And so he, he would say, I would also say he was a big influence on me. One thing I would say about leadership, uh, what I do, I do understand clearly in all walks of life, leadership is 
at the top is absolutely vital for a, a for a business, a football team, in any walk of life to be successful. And it's quite evident. I was in the motor trade for a long time as well, selling car warranties to car dealerships. And you could almost tell when you walked into the business, uh, in a, many of the car dealerships, you could almost tell from the moment you walked in by initial reaction people came and welcomed you that the business was well run or conversely not well run at all. And so I understand the, the, the value and quality of leadership. And that's why I'm very fortunate to be involved in my career in those early days with two, two great leaders in, in Ron Greenwood and, and Al Ramsey. Absolutely. And um, since you've already uh, brought him up, uh, Jeff, I think it'd be remiss not to go a little bit further with that. But obviously, uh, after uh, oh, at West Ham, your uh, plan came to the attention of uh, South Ramsey. Now, there's a man, I'm sure, when you walked into a room, you knew who was um, in charge. When it came to managing that England team, what was his style like, Jeff? Well, one thing, the first thing I say about Alf Ramsey, he's probably over my life the most powerful influence who had on me um, as a person. Um, mm. Naturally, it happens to an extent because he's got your whole career in his hand, whether he picks you for England or he doesn't pick you. It can have a great impact on your, <laughs> your career and, of course, your life. But yep. in that era, I was involved for six or seven years. He, it was quite clear who was the boss. He was quite very, very strict. Probably at a time, maybe overly strict, but at a time you probably wouldn't get necessarily get away with it in, in today's football because it's changed dramatically in how you deal with with players then and players now. But he was the most powerful man I came across, and very few people. And he, he was quite ruthless in getting people out who didn't want to be who didn't want to be part of a group, part of a team. It is important that if you've got a group of people, and that's in any walk of life, they're all singing off the same hymn for you, and you don't have anybody that's griping or moaning about the system. And if you've got people like that in your organisation, one thing I have learned, and I've taken it on in my life, my family, you've got somebody in a group that doesn't want to be part of it, you, you get them out. And Alf, I think, was was quite ruthless with that in his, in his staff. And I think that's one, thing I, one of the most serious ones I think I've learned over a long period of time. And is there, do you think, uh, a, a specific moment? I'm sure there's probably dozens, but is there a specific moment, if you could uh, perhaps pick right now, that did show those uh, qualities in uh, Sir Alf so uh, sharply? Yes, I think for, for me, certainly, um, I think there are instances of players who you thought would, would be in the team or certainly in the squad, and surprising there were not. There was no necessary reason for it. But looking mm. back, I do think perhaps they were people that Alf didn't think wanted to be part of the group. Um, so that that's that's for me. In terms of my personal view, I think that it looked prior to the um, World Cup that I was going to be playing um, in it, only a few games before I was I was playing. And I played with Jimmy Greaves in the game against Yugoslavia only a couple of months before the final. And it looked at that stage as if I was going to be, be playing in, in the team. But uh, in a couple of friendly games, more friendly games, before the final in Poland and uh, uh, Norway, I think, and Denmark, mm. I didn't. I played two of the four games. And I probably didn't quite replicate my, my form that I'd been showing at West Ham and in the early couple of games for England. And he, he left me out in the first game of the World Cup against uh, 
Uruguay. He started off with Jimmy Green and Roger Hunt. So I, I had an impact of thinking I, at that stage I like I was going to play and didn't start because of just a lack of form. I didn't play quite well enough to justify my position. And somewhat fortuitously, I only got back in the team because of a, a nasty gash to shin um, on Jimmy Green's leg. And I think what you've said there, uh, Jeff, actually does sum that up really well. And more than that, whilst it's important to have that someone in charge with those qualities, it's almost useless if there isn't a strong and unified team behind them. And there really must have been moments, maybe there weren't, but uh, let us know in that 66 competition, the prolonged pressure on all of you, you know, the weight of a nation, did it get to you? Oh, not for me personally, no. I, I think, and I don't, uh, not for me, not for a second. I think mm. I was just happy to be, you know, be involved in the squad initially. Uh, not at all. I didn't, you're not aware of the magnitude of the occasion, really, looking back out. Mm. So I never really felt, people talk about pressure a lot, and it's there, and people, players talk about people talk about it in life. I didn't really feel necessary to feel any great pressure, pressure during the time I was there. And what is also important, to say about Alf Ramsey, people he, he left behind that were left in the squad after he'd moved one or two players out, the squad were uh, a, a bunch of very hard-nosed, professional, uh, top-quality people. And that was, again, the leadership that Al showed. He, he got people in together that were very, very strong personally. Um, uh, and I think that was part of the success we had. We were a very... I always describe our, our group as hard-nosed professionals. Um, we have some great players, but overall, they were great hard-nosed professional players um, and great quality people who we've kept in contact with, you know, over the years. And Jeff, I've got to ask, and I'm, I'm not making this up, I've genuinely heard that people do ask you whether or not you realise there were people on the pitch at that moment. I imagine you were busy on something else. Well, I... I did some theatre shows last year. They've gone fairly well, and we're going to do a series of uh, theatre shows. In fact, starting this week, over the next uh, two or three months. And uh, at the end of the theatre shows, we have about 20 minutes where we uh, uh, allow the people in the audience to ask questions. And the, the, there's, I won't mention both. They're too long to talk about both questions. Um, one, the other one's a really stupid one. It's too long for me to tell you. It's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. But the, the, the other ridiculous question I get asked, did I realise there were people on the pitch? And of course I jokingly say, yes, I was just about to, to shoot to score the goal and I looked round, put my foot on the ball and looked round for a little while and said, oh dear, there are six or seven people running on the pitch. So that's, uh, I've had been asked that once at one of the theatre shows. <laughs> so I joke, make a joke about that and saying, yes, I put my foot on the ball and waited to just have a, have a glance round, you know. Maybe it does prove there are things that such as stupid questions, really. Um, oh, yeah, there, are, there certainly are. I've got another one which I won't bore you with. It won't be too long to tell you. Uh, I was in a Jersey or Channel Lines, Jersey or Jersey, two or three mm. years ago, and most stupid, irrelevant questions, absolutely nothing to do with football whatsoever, which uh, was absolutely. But I can use that now because it, it is quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe another time then. But we. Um, 
Uh, well, you want me, I, I can tell you if you want. You want. You got time? I can tell, I tell you if you want. Jeff, go on, go. On. I think I'd be, it would be silly if I said no at this point. Okay, so I was uh, doing a, a, at a dinner in in the Channel Islands, three or four hundred people, black tie dinner, uh, guest of honor. Mm-hmm. And this occasion, I was speaking for about twenty minutes, then allowing uh, questions from the audience at the end of the evening, and there was usual football questions. And then all of a sudden, I had a somebody at the back who who asked a question. I didn't quite hear what he said. He didn't have the microphone with him. So I said, I didn't hear what he said. Can you please give mm. this chap the microphone so I can hear clearly what he said? So the chap had the mic and he said, when a turtle loses itself, is it naked or is it homeless? Right. <laughs> what, what a question. What a question. Uh, well, I think that would be in, definitely in the stupid category, wouldn't it? So we had a laugh about that. Is- uh, well, uh, and we, that you've got to have a patient of a saint, I think, sometimes to put up with <laughs> well, things no, like that. Just, but then again, I found it amusing. I just found it amusing. In fact, some of the audience found it highly amusing as well. So it did, uh, um, it did make again, laugh that If you can put up with my questions, you can probably put up with uh, anything. <laughs> um, but there, there would have become a point, though, um, Jeff, I think um, you, you were a young man when see this happened when you must have realized that people teammates began looking at you for leadership um is that something that occurred to you or did you just realize that by by quick one way or the other people actually begin to look up for you for inspiration well possibly that's never really struck me until you've actually mentioned it now quite frankly that's a new a new question mm. does anybody look up to me? I'm sure perhaps uh, there are there are people who pay you compliments of, of uh, fans of, of West Ham and uh, of Stoke and of course in, uh, England fans who um, I, I think probably uh, it would be very immodest of me to to suggest I, I felt that somebody was looking to me for inspiration. Um, you, but, you don't but, have to, but I will. Uh, well, um, it's, it's okay for a third party to do it. Uh, perhaps, um, perhaps that may have been the case over the years. Uh, people look at you, and um, uh, maybe uh, it has a, a helpful effect. Uh, but I do think you, you, how you behave and set examples on and off the pitch is people must realise that that's, that has an influence. How you react and behave mm. to, to situations on and off the field surely probably has an impact to younger players coming in into the team latterly. Um, yeah. And and with that, looking at um, uh, football today, uh, is there anybody that you think particularly on the field or the sidelines that strikes you as someone with um, those qualities that you could identify in a, in a natural leader? Um. Well, a player, current players, you mean? Oh, players, managers, anybody that uh, you look to today, really? Well, I think some of the outstanding. I think the, the, the best example about a, a leader and at the moment is is, is uh, Klopp at Liverpool. Mm. He has been absolutely fantastic to uh, acquire the players and get them to their attitude is absolutely fantastic. They're great players, but there's more than just being good players in football. It's a good player with a fantastic attitude and their willingness to work for each other and the team is absolutely outstanding. Hence these unbelievable results. There are, you know, 
and the great players not always succeed as, as individuals or probably even uh, certainly as a team if you haven't got the right attitude alongside it. And they're probably, and that, that comes through the leadership. That's not just luck. Absolutely. That's, that's absolutely leadership. He'd be the best example, of course, in, in football terms today. Uh, easily, easily. And of course, but going back not that long ago, Alex Ferguson, who just absolutely, mm. you've got to take him as the first example, but Klopp's only done this for a period of time, a short period of time. But if you look at the 25, 26, 27 years that Alex Ferguson did with Manchester United, and subsequently since he's gone, how they they are not doing so well. He's the best example of management I've seen, we've seen, we've probably ever seen, and I don't think anybody will see the light of that kind of leadership again. It's ast- absolutely astonishing, astonishing. And do you think, could you imagine uh, Sir Alf or even Ron Greenwood managing teams today? Yes, I think so. I think, yes, no, mm. no question at all. I think they, uh, Ron Greenwood, yeah, well, the, the answer is straightforward. The answer is yes. Um, they, answer. <laughs> the, the straightforward answer is yes. I can elaborate as much as you want, but the straight answer is absolutely categorically yes. Uh, and with, um, I know uh, if we could talk about this probably for the next hour or so, but um, I'm conscious of the um, time. Um, looking um, back uh, through your um, playing career, perhaps especially um, your time uh, for England, who was it uh, that struck you more than anyone else on the pitch uh, that displayed qualities of not just leadership, but uh, companionship and and level-headedness that you think that have stuck with you all these years later? Well, I think we were, I was very fortunate and I wouldn't take any one player out. I think looking at so that... So many. Yeah, so many. And that's why we were successful because we had so many um, showing all those qualities that you just mentioned uh, throughout the team. I think that that was outstanding and, uh, uh, and it's an opportunity to talk about uh, all of them in, in that breath. And there was nobody, and I've been going back from an earlier earlier question for me, that um, all hard-nosed professionals, good good teammates, mm. good socially, and that's why we kept in touch with each other on our golf days every year, uh, up until about five years ago, of course, with, with the uh, sadly dwindling yes. numbers. We, we still got on, our wives got on with, all together all those years later. It didn't just finish after 66. It, that reunion, that camaraderie, that team spirit, mm. the, um, getting on with each other lasted for, for a long, long, long time. And I wouldn't... I... When, it, when you put those, those questions and how you categorise those... I would pick every one of the 11 players um, who you put in that category that were like that. There was nobody else. They were all outstanding. And I think that was a big part. I can't stress how big a part that was. And I've said that many, many times for the success of the team. We had some great players. We had some great players, of course. But without the attitude (laughs) alongside that, going back to an earlier question, we wouldn't have been as uh, ultimately, ultimately as successful. Exactly. Without that, you, the, the the whole will never be greater than the sum of its parts. But with it, yes, the word, the word is team. the word is t- the word is team. Absolutely. And I always use the word team when I talk. Sometimes you know, together, everyone achieves more, and that that's the same in any walk of life. That, that's fundamental. 
And uh, lastly, uh, Jeff, looking, if, if you were to uh, give advice, and whether this is in sport or business or indeed any other walk of life, what would you identify, if you can, as the key tenant uh, that you can't go without in terms of leading a team, no matter what that team is? Single-mindedness, uh, single-mindedness dedication, dedication to the job, um, thinking about that, that, that role, that job in leadership all the time. It's a huge part of your life. I don't think you can switch off when you're in, in business at the top level or sport at the top level. You may, you know, have a, way, have a couple of weeks holiday, but I'm even sure if, if these top managers and lead, leaders in all walks of life are away on holiday on a beach somewhere warm, I'm sure there's not, uh, there's, they will not switch off for, for two weeks um, and completely uh, not think about their role as the boss of an organisation. And I think that's, you're completely focused. You're always thinking about uh, things, thinking about improvements, and it's just dedication and uh, uh, tuning your life to being successful. Excellent. Well, Jeff, on that point, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Very good to, nice to have a talk about this and just go over the, go over the past and just uh, refresh my, mem- my own memory about the quality of the players I grew up with. Excellent. Uh, another time, uh, it would be great to talk again. Thank, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.